Thanks for listening to the Three Strands podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit us at threestrands.church. We're starting a whole new series today called Talking Funny. Dave said he couldn't wait for this one because he couldn't wait for me to make fun of our own people. I'm not going to do that. I just want you to know that, okay? I might, but listen, some of you have been in life group with me before, have heard uh, my story. You know that my parents divorced when I was like, uh, I don't know, three or four years old. I was just a young boy. And so when I was six years old, my mother moved my sister and I back to her hometown of Carson, California. My dad remained here in McCreary County. And for six years of my life, uh, I wouldn't get to see him all year until the summertime. And so in the summertime, I would fly from LAX, Los Angeles International Airport, to Cincinnati all by myself at that age, which scared me to death. But then I would get to spend a month with my dad, who I really loved. And while we were here during in the summertime in Kentucky, I heard all kinds of weird sayings that that people didn't use in California. Uh, Sayings like, you know, it it was hot here in the summer, it's humid, and they would say it's like, it's hotter than a, a $2 pistol. Or it's hotter than Satan's armpit, you know? And it led me to believe that people around here talked funny. They don't talk like that back in California. They talk funny around here. And then when I would visit here, my friends would tell me that I talked funny because my accent was so proper. That they said I talked like some surfer dude from the valley, some kid from the valley, you know? And I was like, totally not, dude. Like, what are you talking about, you know? Um, But then after being here for a month or so, hanging out with my dad, I would go back to California and my friends and family there would tell me that I talked funny because I sounded so country. Uh, My next door neighbor would call me like Hillbilly Jim from WWF and cover his front teeth, dancing around like an idiot, saying that that was me, you know, and uh, making fun of us hillbillies around here. But, uh, you know, my dad talked funny. And it's one of the things that I really loved about him. He had hundreds and hundreds of country sayings that he taught me growing up. Uh, Sayings like, ducks on the pond. If we were playing baseball and there were runners on base, he would say, son, there's ducks on the pond, ducks on the pond, you know, to try to get the runners in. When he would get irritated, he would always say he was half mad. You know, like, that fellow over there made me about half mad. And I was like, half mad? Like, I always wondered what it would be like if you got all the way mad, you know, 100%. But he was only half mad. Or when then ex-UK basketball coach Tubby Smith failed to recruit elite talent to Lexington in the early 2000s, um, and they would play an awful game, he'd say, son, you can't take chicken crap and make chicken salad, okay? You got to recruit the best. And there were many others that are not church appropriate. I'm not sure that last one was either, but that's what he said, okay? Um, But anyway, in this series, we're going to take a look at some of our talking funny sayings and see what God has to say concerning the issues of being judgmental, pride, anger, worry, and performance. I also want to share with you a couple of pictures that illustrate some advantages of living in the South. There are advantages of living here, okay? Like this one here. Look at this one, Yank. Th- that picture there illustrates uh, the one benefit of living in the South, and that's that we can take multiple words from the English language and we can combine them into just one word, like Yank. Isn't that wonderful? It's incredible. And in context, it, it would sound something like, you know, a wife trying to keep her husband awake during the sermon, and, and as he begins to nod off, she'd say, you ain't falling asleep again, are you? Something like that, right? You ain't. It's wonderful. 
Another uh, benefit of living in the South would be this picture here. Okay? This is what you saw when you opened up Grandma's refrigerator and you didn't know if it was filled with butter or leftovers, did you? Right? And so if you opened up the fridge looking for leftover spaghetti and it ended up being butter, you thought, man, what a crock, right? You were wanting some spaghetti or leftovers, right? But that's an advantage of living in the South as well. Well, today's talking funny phrase is bless your heart. Now, if you're not from Kentucky, if you're from up north around like Pennsylvania or Illinois, you need to understand that this is not some generous blessing that somebody's pouring out over your life. It is a southern person's way of saying, we love you, but we feel sorry for you. Okay? We love you, but we feel sorry for you. It's really nice meanness is what it is. And many people have perfected the art of nice meanness. You know, sadly, it goes unnoticed by many people that Jesus had a sense of humor. And we see it most often in his preaching. In the four Gospels, Jesus would sometimes use a form of humor called hyperbole. It's just exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. He he would use them to disarm an audience. Oftentimes around here, the reason that we like to play a, a funny video clip at the beginning of our church service or just before the sermon when we teach is to disarm people who may have their guard up. A lot of people walk in here with their guard up. So a lot of times we like to do that. Brad did it last week with a Tim Hawkins clip about Noah's Ark. And Jesus would use it especially when he was about to teach on a difficult or controversial topic. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus steps on a lot of toes. But, but it, he uses hyperbole when he says this in Matthew 7, starting in verse 1. He says, don't judge others, and you won't be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard that you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And he says this. And why worry about the speck of sawdust in a friend's eye when you have a walking stick, a two-by-four, a plank in your own eye? I mean, just picture this. Jesus in there trying to teach this, holding up a piece of wood and going, you know what, how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that, that speck of sawdust in your eye when you've got one of these in your own eye? He says, um, When you can't see past the log in your own eye, hypocrite, first, get rid of this log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. We know that Jesus was raised in a carpenter's home, right? And so he would have been familiar with woodworking and getting sawdust in his eyes. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever had a speck of sawdust get in your eye, you know that it's irritating, it's annoying, And you have to use like a a wet washcloth or a baby wipe or eye drops to get it out. Something gentle. Jesus said, imagine if you had one of these. Imagine if you had one of these sticking out of your eye. The approach to getting this sucker out, it's not going to be very gentle, is it? There's no way. The approach is going to be aggressive. You're going to have to go to the emergency room. You're going to have to have surgery. It's going to be aggressive. And then there's going to be like this painful long road to recovery. Jesus' point in that passage is crystal clear. He says before we can get concerned or try to deal with the small sins in someone else's life, 
He says we need to pay attention to the big sins in our own lives. And so, guys, this morning, I just want to give us three things today, okay, three take-home applications, so to speak, about our hearts and what's flowing out of them so that our hearts can be a blessing when we say bless your heart, right? So three things, take-home lessons, and the first one is this. The first thing I want you to know is we follow a different leader. We follow a different leader than the world does. And our leader's name is synonymous with love. In fact, in 1 John 4, 16, it tells us by definition, God is love. And, and when Jesus described himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he said, I am humble and I'm gentle, where? At heart. Translation, I'm not a speck inspector. I'm not. And when we see this, uh, it, we see this in the way that Jesus treated other people. You remember the woman at the well who had been used and abused by one man after another? Jesus wanted to leave the impression that he wasn't like that, that he wasn't going to treat her the way that they had. And when we read those in the pages of Scripture, we love that about him, don't we? We love who Jesus was and how he treated people. He continually would put himself in the shoes of blind people, paralyzed people, hungry people, and poor people, and it changed the way they felt. They felt loved, and they felt cared for in the presence of Jesus. You know, every now and then when, when someone asks me for help with a problem, I'm still learning in my life um, to share with them what God's helped me with, the problems he's helped me through, and the sins that he's forgiven me of. Because what I'm learning is that levels the playing field. It communicates that we're all in the same boat. And so when someone says, hey, my marriage is struggling. I really need some help. I'm, it's falling apart. I try to resp respond with the part of my story that includes a divorce and how I'm still learning to be a better husband. It, it puts people at ease. And they can relate when we share the two most powerful words in the English language. We say it a lot around here. Me too. Me too. You know, guys, most people struggle deeply. Most people in this room struggle deeply and change slowly. That's just the truth. But guess what? Jesus understood that. He understood that. And so it influenced the way that he interacted with people. Some of you will recognize this man's face. His name is Patrick Stewart. He's a, a famous actor. And what's not known about him is that he grew up in a home with a violent, abusive, alcoholic father. And so when, when Patrick Stewart graduated, he left home, and he stayed away from his dad for the next 40 years. Imagine that. And because every time he thought about his dad, feelings of anger and bitterness flooded his heart, and it created resentment in his heart, and so he didn't want to be around his dad. But, but as his dad grew older and he became sick nearing his death, someone in Patrick Stewart's hometown said to him, I don't know if, if anybody's ever told you this or not, but your dad has wrestled with PTSD over the years, most of his life. And Patrick Stewart said he didn't, didn't even know. He didn't even know that his dad fought in a war. He, he never brought it up that he had fought four tours of duty, four straight years in World War II, and was on the front lines in one of the worst battles in human history. He didn't know any of that. And he said understanding his dad helped him to love his dad. John Stott, a famous theologian, said, 
It's sinful to look for something wrong in someone else's life and then delight in finding it. To delight in finding it. I asked our teen life group last week, did anybody you know fail this week? Did they fall and screw up and you were happy about it? Made you happy? Guys, listen. Jesus did not delight when we screw up. Okay, He he doesn't delight in finding wrong in us. The truth is that he died for it. And you know, he doesn't just point out our problems. He actually picked them up, nailed them to a cross so we could be free of them forever. He's not like others. He's not like other leaders. He's different. He's humble and he's gentle at heart. Guys, we follow a different leader. Also, this. We also, we live by a different law. (coughs) Excuse me. And just like our leader, the law that you and I live by is synonymous with love. Look at Romans 13, verse 8. It says, if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. You know, Jesus was asked one day what the greatest command in all of Scripture was. You remember what he said? He said, love God. Love God. And then he followed up with the way that we love God is by loving other people, the people that he died for. You know, the truth is, the only ones we have to love are the people that he died for. That's it. Everybody else you don't have to love, okay? Mother Teresa said this. She said, if we judge people, we have no time to love them. If we're continually judging people, we don't have time to love them. Very, very true. There's a man named uh, Darren Young who was arrested for violating a restraining order that his ex-girlfriend had out on him. Uh, And with an EPO, you know, you can't have any contact, any interaction whatsoever with the person that's filed this against you. Well, Darren Young couldn't resist. And so one night, in a three-hour period, this guy sent 144 derogatory text messages to his ex-girlfriend, calling her every awful name that you can think of, every demeaning comment, that he could think of. He even made fun of her physical appearance. And so um, he wasn't, (coughs) excuse me, he wasn't surprised when a few hours later some sheriff's deputies pulled up at his apartment, knocked on his door, and they put handcuffs on him. And then a few days later, he stood in front of a judge at his arraignment, and the judge said this. The judge said, I don't know whether to cut off your fingers or take your phone away to, to keep you from texting. For every nasty thing you said about her, you're going to say something nice. And the judge backed it up because he had the authority to do so. He forced this guy to send 144 complimentary texts to his ex-girlfriend. And he said, you can't repeat yourself. Every nice statement must be new and original. Now, I like that verdict. And I like the law that that judge lives by. But what will help you and I to be kind to people this week is if we really look at the difference between judgmental people and Jesus people. Because there is a difference. Let me distinguish between the two. Judgmental people, they react before reflecting, don't they? They hear something negative about someone, they just jump on that bandwagon because they think it's going to make them look better. But Jesus people don't act like that. Jesus people reflect before reacting. No, we look at people and we think, you know what? They're no different than I am. We're all in the same boat together. I mean, I see their sin, but their sin's no different than mine. Something else is that judgmental people 
overemphasize non-essentials, where Jesus' people overlook non-essentials. Guys, listen, if it doesn't have to do with eternity, then stop dwelling on it. Stop dwelling on it. It's not that important. You know, I, I love that phrase that says, in essentials, unity. Okay, in the basics, let, let's be one. But in non-essentials, liberty. Let's have some freedom. But in all things, love. Let's love no matter what. Judgmental people also settle disputes publicly, whereas Jesus' people settle disagreements privately. And I know that social media makes this so difficult in our culture in which we live because, you know, everyone feels like they're entitled to an opinion. I get that. But they take it a step further, and they also think it's their responsibility to let everyone else know about that opinion. And that's not always a good thing. We talked about it last Wednesday night at our Journey 2.0 Life group. Uh, you know, that, that, hey, you're allowed to keep on scrolling when somebody says something on social media that you disagree with. It's not a rule on Facebook that you can't keep on scrolling. You just keep scrolling, right? Be a, a wise thing to do for some of us. Th this man's name is Jim O'Connor. Um, he's, he's a math teacher at an all-male private high school in California. He's also a Vietnam veteran who desires discipline. He despises laziness, and he has extremely high standards for his students. His expectations, he sets them even higher than what the principal of the school sets them and the rest of the school administrators. He's taken a step even further. And over the years, some of his students have excelled, but others have bucked against his authority, kind of labeling him with just one nasty nickname after another. But all of that changed recently when one of his students was volunteering at a local children's hospital. The kids saw a plaque on the wall that read, In honor of Mr. Jim O'Connor, biggest blood donor in the history of California. And the student asked a nurse there and said, You know, is this the same Jim O'Connor who's a math teacher at a local high school? And the nurse said, Yeah, it is. She said he's donated 72 gallons of blood over the course of his lifetime, saving a countless number of people. Then the nurse said, You know what's even better than that? She said three nights a week, he shows up at our neonatal intensive care unit and he rocks sick and dying babies who are terminally ill. You know, that student learned an important lesson that day about a higher law, that he had a teacher who loved Jesus more than math. Guys, we follow a different leader. We live by a different law. And last but not least, we speak a different language that we have a heavenly father who loves spending time with us, just like the dad and his son there. And he knows everything that we're thinking. He knows everything that we're feeling. And he can even interpret things we're trying to say even when we don't know what to say. Right? Or, or as Sam oftentimes says about Dave, even when he doesn't know what he's asking, you know? But shouldn't we want to share the good news with the world that everybody has a heavenly father that wants to spend time with them, who loves them, is crazy about them, wants to ambush them with his grace. You know, there was an article written a while back about how you can tell whether people from the South are really angry or just kind of angry, okay? So the article said there were four stages of anger in the South. And so let's see if you all can relate to this or not. I think I can, no doubt. But they said the first stage of anger in the South is this. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
Okay, that's the first stage. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not going to find these in any psychology book or any research, okay? But in the South, this is real. We know that when somebody's just getting a little upset, like, whoa, 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 right? Okay. The second one is this. Hold your horses. Hold your horses, right? You ever use that one? If you say anything good about Duke basketball, Michelle, or Tennessee football, you're going to hear this one. Hold your horses, okay? Or even here at church, if you laugh at any of my dad jokes that Dave doesn't find amusing, you'll hear him say every now and then, hold your horses. It's not that funny, okay? Don't be laughing at that stuff. And then after that, there's this next level of anger, and that's, geez Louise. You ever heard that one? Yeah, geez Louise. Now, we're not sure who Louise is have no idea, I don't, but she's mentioned a lot around here and just in the South in general. Jeez Louise, right? But then this final step is when we know somebody is ticked off. They are highly upset. It is very serious, and that's this one. Listen here, buddy. Listen here, buddy. You ever said that? Um, this is used if you say something unkind about someone's mom Johnny Cash, Aaron Lovell, or Mountain Dew, okay? If you say something derogatory about those things, that's what you're going to hear. Listen here, buddy. Uh, we, we were driving back from the advance last weekend, and uh, Chad Starrett here, he, he pulled one. He told the whole truck this. I couldn't even believe he said it. And he said this. He said, you know what? He said, ski's better than Mountain Dew. And you know what I said to him? Listen here, buddy, okay? That's across the line. And we've not spoken since. It was so offensive but it's definitely not. Research shows that over the course of our lifetime, we will speak about 860 million words with a listening world. Think about that, 860 million. We share a lot of words that can determine whether we're going to help or hurt people. There's a reason why at almost every doctor's office that you go to, an appointment that you have, you go to the doctor and they ask us to what? Open our mouth and stick out our tongues. Jesus, the great physician, he said it this way in Matthew chapter 12, the second part of verse 34, when he said this. He said, what you say flows from what is in your heart. And I love the way the message paraphrases this verse. It puts it like this. It says that it's your heart, not the dictionary, that gives meaning to your words. Very true. Guys, when we read the Bible, it's as if the Holy Spirit has a stethoscope and he's, he's put it up against our chest, our heart. And with the other hand, he's got a tongue depressor and he reminds us that the words that come out of our mouths are an inward, an inward indicator of what's taking place in our heart, the inward condition. What we say to and about other people is the clearest indication of whether or not God's love has truly taken root in our lives if it's growing, and if it's developing fruit. I don't know if you ever heard of author Frank Peretti. Um, he wrote a book called The Wounded Spirit years ago. And in that book, he describes how when he was a little boy, he had this cancerous tumor removed from his neck, and he said that it left him looking deformed. And he said his classmates were relentless in teasing him, that adults were relentless in staring at him, and it left him feeling like he had a wounded spirit. And that's why he wrote the book. You know, sadly, some of us today can experience, we have experienced this firsthand. I don't know about you, but maybe you were given a nickname as a young kid that kind of wounded you. Maybe you had a teacher or a coach or a parent, a classmate, tell you that you weren't coordinated enough, that you weren't smart enough, that you weren't pretty enough, 
that you weren't thin enough, that you weren't good enough, that you just weren't enough. And what happened was over the years, you began to believe them. And so it it caused this deep-seated insecurity that, that kind of settled into your heart. And because of that, you've often questioned God in your life. You even question God's love for you. And you sometimes wonder, does my heavenly father really love me? Does he truly love me? I mean, God, am I really that weird? Am I really that awkward? Am I really that different, that unwanted? The truth is you're wounded. Peretti writes directly to that pain when he says this. He says, if you've discovered some defect in yourself, then welcome to the human race. Regardless of your failures, you're just as human and just as precious as anybody else. He says, you're a member. Think you're ugly? You're a member. You have cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, or polio? You're a member. You have freckles, too tall, too skinny, too much of anything? You're a member. Felt left out because you're mentally or physically challenged? You're a member. Ever been raped or molested? You're still a member. All of us, with our wrinkles, shortcomings, and imperfections are God's creation, he writes. We're all precious in his sight and should be precious to one another. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise, not even you. Guys, our words matter. They're going to help or they're going to hurt. We get to decide whether we are going to speak life or drain it. In Psalm 141, verse 3, David wrote a prayer that I need to pray every day in my life when he said this. Take control of what I say, O Lord, and guard my lips. How about you? Something you need to pray every day as well? Guys, listen, before a word passes from our hearts to our head and out of our mouths, I think there's three questions we ought to be asking ourselves. And I'm as guilty as anybody. I'm not preaching at you, okay? But the three questions are this. Is what I'm about to say true? Is it true? Is what I'm about to say helpful? Is it helpful? Is what I'm about to say kind? Is it kind? And if the answer comes back to any of those three questions that no, it's not, then the truth is I probably shouldn't say it. You know, there's a sign hanging in Cracker Barrel that reads this. It says, during your lifetime, you will have many opportunities to bite your tongue. Take advantage of all of them. Take advantage of all of them. That's some very good advice. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 29, he said, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. There was a farmer who lost his dog. It was a black lab, and he'd been gone for a week. And he was working in the field one day, and he he saw it running in his direction. And he was so excited. But then as as he looked off into the distance, not only did he see his dog, he he saw that his dog was leading another dog. And then as they got closer, he saw not only is his dog leading another dog, but it, it was leading another animal. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, we're going to clap for the goat? All right. The greatest of all time, the goat. But what in the world did that dog say to the other dog to get him to follow him? 
And then what did those two dogs say to that goat to get him to follow him and then jump into the truck with a stranger, you know? I saw that video and I, and I thought this, you know, isn't that a picture of our mission as the church? That everything we say and that everything we do should be to make people feel wanted and to make people feel welcomed and warm in our presence. Everything we say and do should make people feel safe and secure in our presence. Guys, we're on a journey to heaven, and we want people to come along with us, just like the goat and that other dog. We want to bring them along. People who are different than us, we want to bring them along. We want the world to know about Jesus. And I know sometimes we talk about attendance numbers around here, and, and I just want you to know we're, we're more concerned with your name than your number. Okay, we're more concerned with your name, who you are, than your attendance. But many churches fall into the attendance trap where it can become easy to view people as a number and not a person for who Jesus died. May that never be said of this church. May it never be said of us. What about this week? Let's make it as obvious as we can to everybody that we come into contact with that, hey, we follow a different leader. We live by a different law, and we speak a different language. Can we do that this week? And let's do all of it in love. Let me pray for us, and then the band's going to come up and close us. Father, thank you for Jesus, that he's not like other leaders. Father, what he's done for us is amazing. And I pray that there's somebody here last night, uh, this, this morning that doesn't understand who he is that he's our Lord and Savior, that he died on the cross for us to forgive us of our sins. And God, you're just crazy about us. You don't, you don't want to live one second separated from us. So Father, I pray that there's somebody in this room this morning that would say, man, I don't know that leader. I don't live by that law and I don't speak that language. I pray today would be the day of salvation, that you would convict their heart. And Father, they wouldn't want to do life with anybody else but you. Father, would you save some people this morning from themselves? Introduce them to your son, Jesus, and set them free. That's my prayer this morning in Jesus' name.